I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. If you can control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. When you determine what a man shall think, you do not have to concern yourself about what he will do. If you make a man feel that he is inferior, you do not have to compel him to accept an inferior status, for he will seek it himself. If you make a man think that he is justly an outcast, you do not have to order him to the back door. He will go without being told. And if there is no back door, his very nature will demand one. Carter Godwin Woodson, The Miseducation of the Negro. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. This might be a bold statement to say, and it's something I've, I've started to feel for quite some time now, is that what is the role of education in America, and particularly within the black community? Because as I look at the state of black youth in schools all across this country, whether secondary education or, you know, primary school, whatever. I'm always being told that we're underperforming and that people put labels on us at risk, marginalized, impoverished. And this is the mindset and viewpoint that a lot of our educators have towards black and brown youth. Not just white educators, black educators as well. And one of the things I've come to believe is that it's not the federal government or the state's responsibility to educate black and brown kids about themselves. And I think it's a broader conversation to have of, is it the federal government's or state's government responsibility to educate American children in general? And when I make statements like this, because people have never seen anything different, it can come across as very radical. And I've had this conversation with some very highly educated individuals, but this is just something that I believe. And one of the reasons I, I, I believe it is because when I look at our performance in schools, and when I say our performance, black youth, Black people, brown people, it is depressing. And for those that listen to me, you know, I don't believe one of us climbing to the mountaintop and making it is a win. And for every Mike Stedman, there is a hundred more like me that are left in the graveyard because the system is jacked up. The system is not meant for us to win and succeed at scale. The education system in this country is not set up for black students to win at scale. And I've come to embrace this idea of an African-centered education where we start to teach black youth about themselves and their origins and where they come from where they see themselves reflected in the text and the books and the literature. 
this concept of agency, right? Where you, you could find meaning in the words and the text. Because I'll tell you all, when I was younger and I was going through AP uh, English classes, or even before AP, a lot of the reading that was assigned to me was Victorian literature. Tessa D'Urbervilles, Pretty Women, right? All this like 20th century, or was it 19th century literature, right? These classics. And I didn't read anything because I wasn't drawn to the text. I didn't, I didn't have a passion for reading at that time. And I thought that I just wasn't a good student because something away about our education system, the way in which it was set up, I, I just struggled with it. And it just didn't come natural to me. Like I had trouble sitting down and sitting in class for, you know, eight hours a day and having to read these, these books that aren't necessarily going to help me win the day. But I played the game and I competed. I didn't excel. And here I am at 34, got my undergrad degree, got my master's degree, right? By all accounts, I'm success, right? I'm highly educated. But the best education I've gotten, to be quite frank, is the education I've sought out myself. The education I've built over the last, you know, five years or even longer, reading books, listening to podcasts, listening to audio books, cultivating the passion of learning. And when I became an entrepreneur and I launched a free boxing gym in Newark, New Jersey, the Iron Brown Boxing Academy, I realized that I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship, but I was determined to find out. And so I went seeking and I started to look in books. And through that process, I became a voracious reader. If you look around my apartment now, all you see is stacks of books everywhere. And I realized that I'm an autodidact. I am a self-taught learner. And there's a reason that the podcast and the audio books and reading and, and getting out there and getting my hands dirty works for me. Because it's just how I learn. And I've taken at this point multiple, you know, I think it's called cultural assessment or whatever. You know, the Colby Strength Finders. What are the other ones? Um, cultural Index. Where we start to help understand our personalities and what roles and jobs we fit best. And when I look at my scores on everything, I'm very autonomous. I kind of need to go out in the wild and do stuff on my own, right? And again, nobody ever taught me that. I didn't know this. I just knew that when I was in the education system, I always felt like I was up against it. That, like I wasn't necessarily running the correct race. But now that I, I'm a lot more educated and I understand how education works for the self, I've come to reinforce this belief of it's not the federal government or the state's responsibility to educate our children. All American children, I'll say that. That's a broad statement, American children in general, but particularly for black and brown youth. And we are sending them into these educational institutions like lambs to the slaughter, and we're getting a bad product. Low high school graduation rates, high attrition rates, Lots of absences, all this kind of stuff. Because at the end of the day is the education we're teaching our youth in schools, helping them survive and thrive as 
black youth in America. It's hard to concentrate on school when you're living in the projects and you don't know if you're going to have electricity when you go home in the evening. When you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. And you know your mom is the working poor. And yet she's preaching you to go get an education. And the other aspect is you see your boys go off to school. They go to college. You're all excited. Everybody's cheering them. And then they come back home with a bunch of debt. Working jobs for $30,000, $40,000 a year. Maybe less. Jobs that they didn't necessarily need a college degree for. And our kids start to get disenfranchised about it. And what are we doing about it? Why are we not having more of these conversations? And we're trying to address the issue in the system that created the issues in the first place. And one of the things you hear me talk about is this concept of agency, where we see ourselves reflected, which is why it's so important to have textbooks and pictures and videos of black people when you're educating black children. And when you don't have it, they don't see themselves reflected. Which is why I am a proponent of an African-centered education because I am focused on the outcome. What do I want? I want black youth with high self-esteem, with confidence in themselves, and a passion for learning. A passion for growing, this growth mindset. And I'm about getting it done. I'm a Marine. I'm mission-oriented. You understand? I don't, there's no ego in this, right? I could be wrong. Let's say I'm wrong. But I'll tell you what, I know what right looks like. And I know what, correction, I know what wrong looks like. And when I look at our education system in this country, with regards to black youth, it is wrong. It's fucked up, to be honest. In 20, what are we, 2021, our education system in this country is fucked up and it's producing a poor outcome. And again, why do I say it's not the, the state and federal government's responsibility? Because if your kids can't read or write and all of a sudden you find out, you know, when they're 15 years old or they're 18 and they're getting ready to graduate and they have no options in life, you know, and you get upset at the schools. We get upset at the schools and we want to fix the schools. We got to fix it ourselves as a community. We've got to take responsibility for the education of our children as a community and teach them what they need to know in order to survive and thrive in America. Which brings me to the topic of today's episode, which is the case for an African-centered education. Many of you might not be aware of what an African-centered education is. So I'm going to try to break it down for you briefly. We live in a European system. When we're told to read the great books, they tell you, go read Marcus Aurelius, the Iliad, and all these other books, which lack agency for black people. When you talk about the great philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, all these legends, they don't look like me. They don't talk to our experience. And this is the basis of our education in this country, where we're constantly on the fringes of history. 
Maybe they give you an African-American history class if you beg for it. And it's a nice, a little elective class, but nobody takes it serious. But I took it serious because I wanted to learn about myself and where I came from. And I realized that the institutions, they're not going to teach that. They will never teach that. It's not their role. So I sought it out myself. And when you're operating on a European system, it makes it very challenging for black people to succeed at scale. We have different experiences in this country. And I think it's okay to say that. When I look at all the different groups in this country, different ethnicities, immigrant groups, you know, I used to teach boxing at the JCC, Jewish Community Center in Tenafly, New Jersey. And they had education classes. They had all kinds of stuff going on. When I was working at St. Benedict's Prep, they had a Saturday school there for a lot of the Indian students that parents organized on their own because you had a lot of staff around the school and they would come from all over New Jersey to meet on Saturdays to make sure that Indian kids knew about their culture and they maintained their practices. And you see this with so many diverse Asian culture, the same thing, right? They're not losing their culture. They're coming together to make sure that their kids stay grounded in their heritage and where they come from. But for some reason in this country, black people think it's okay to hand off that responsibility to others. And I'm so thankful now, as I'm older, of the time I spent doing Black History Bowls in the Deep South, in East Texas, where we do these competitions at church and spit off Black history. Little did I know at the time that my family and my community was trying to empower me to have confidence in myself and to know my history and, and where I came from. And I, I'm so thankful for that now because once you get out in the real world, it's not like that. Once you leave those communities, it's not like that. So when I left to go to the Naval Academy, no one was teaching me about black history or the black Naval officers or the black Marines. It was like, this is not, you might as well be non-existent when you walk into the, his, the museums, and you don't see people that look like you, or maybe we'll give you the first, the first graduate, you know, Wesley Brown, the very first graduate of Naval Academy. But he was the first one to graduate. What about all the ones that failed out before, that were hazed, that, were, that had to experience the silent treatment, where cadets and midshipmen, both at West Point and Naval Academy, wouldn't talk to them and weeded them out with violence as well. We don't hear about those. We don't hear about the graveyard because it's, it's negative, right? We want to be just positive. So it'll tell us about the first, but they won't tell us about those in the graveyards. And so an African-centered education places black people at the center of their history. And I think that's a very profound approach to education when you think about what is the intentions. If the intentions is to teach black youth how to survive and thrive at scale, I think that is very important. It's culture. You're passing the traditions around because otherwise, if you fully assimilate, you lose all these things. You lose all the things that make you you. You don't have any self-confidence because you don't see people who look like you. 
You know, African-Americans in this country, black people, we have a long history of entrepreneurship. Where it's nothing new. Now you look at the numbers, black people in this country, we own less than 2% of small businesses in this country. I think it's 2% businesses in general, right? And you got to check the stats on that, but I'm pretty sure when I saw the SBA report that less than 2% of businesses in this country are black-owned, and half of those are single-member LLCs. And again, who's classifying what it means to be black-owned? If it's coming from within the black community, that's one thing. If it's coming from an authority on the outside of black community telling us what's black-owned, that's a whole separate entity. And so this idea, this case for an African-centered education is meant to help black youth find confidence within themselves. And to help me talk through this issue, I invited on the show one of my thrivers, Michelle Kelsick. Michelle Kelsick, founder of Creation Academy. She's a 17-year-old Newark resident who teaches African-centered education. She launched a podcast called the Creation Academy Podcast, where she explores these thoughts. And she's currently uh, building out curriculum to teach the parents and teachers about how to help black kids improve their self-image through an African-centered education. And, you know, we have all these labels. Again, you've heard the labels I've talked about, at risk, marginalized, all these different things, negative labels. And then we have labels like teacher. What does it mean to be a teacher, right? We, you have to go to get a certification. You got to go do all these things. But at the end of the day, education is simple. You have a problem. You need to figure out how to solve it. You go pick up a book. You pass knowledge on. We, we don't need all these certifications. We need to know, can you get the job done? Everyone has the ability to be a teacher, in my opinion. And, you know, I launched an incubator program last year called Thrive, which Michelle participated in. And when I looked around the landscape of Newark in the throes of the pandemic, and I saw how economically depressed we were, I couldn't just sit by idly and not do anything. So I reached out to a few friends, many of you who are listening on this podcast, and we launched a small business incubator for youth and young adults here in the city of Newark called Thrive. And as of today, we've launched two cohorts. We've given out over $10,000 in micro grants. We've taught kids over the course of four weeks, everything they need to know about how to launch a small business that allows them to generate income for themselves and their loved ones at a moment's notice. I don't care if you're cleaning cars, you're cutting lawns, old school entrepreneurship. And we'll have people tell us that that's not entrepreneurship. And you'll have people tell you, oh, what can you do with $500, you know, or $2,000? You can't build a business off it. Have you tried registering a website and you don't have $200 to go to Squarespace or GoDaddy to get a domain? Like who is saying this stuff, right? Why have we handed this stuff off? And so part of Thrive is kind of taking that power back and being results focused. And this idea of what are the alternatives? If we don't take this opportunity to teach these kids how to generate income for themselves as entrepreneurs, who else is going to do it? I'll wait. 
And so there's this immense power that comes back, comes to you when you embrace this idea of teaching, when the community embraces this idea of what it means to be a teacher. And at Ironbound, we figured out a way to teach our kids entrepreneurship, to teach our kids boxing, to teach our kids how to stand up and fight back against their circumstances. And I don't have a certification in the world about teaching or whatever, but guess what? I've led Marines. I've taught Marines. I've got experience doing that. I launched a gym in a city without any family or friends and made it one of the premier gyms in the country. I've launched a media company from scratch in my apartment with a microphone and a laptop. And so we all have the ability to teach and our kids are hungry for this. They're hungry. And when it comes to entrepreneurship, they're hungry to see people who look like them teaching it. And that was one of the biggest feedbacks I get from our thrivers. And so, you know, I'd already been kind of having these ideas about the limitations of America's tr view of traditional education and the opportunity African-centered education uh, can afford. And so when I saw Michelle come into the program, I was immediately blown away because this, this, she's only 17. She's already launched her own podcast prior to joining with her iPhone on Anchor, 25 episodes in, all by herself, running her business on Instagram. But she gets it. And right off the bat, her and I are sharing books and texts, learning from one another. And I'm trying to get a better understanding of the African-centered education landscape. And sure enough, what do I find out? There are people just like me who've been talking about this for years, but they were buried in the education system in terms of what we teach in, in, at the collegiate level, right? They're, you're not going to catch their books on the shelves at Barnes and Noble. You probably got to go to a black bookstore, but they've been out here for years fighting this battle, making this argument, making the case for it, showing the results. But we didn't listen. And then you take a guy like Carter G. Woodson who wrote The Miseducation of the Negro. I got to look at the date on that book, but I believe this book was written in like the 1920s. First, I think re the book I have reprinted in 1933. So there's nothing new. History is cyclical. Nothing we're facing now is new. It's all been done before. And the argument I made at the beginning about you need to listen to the great readers, read the great books, the books that have survived the test of time without people that look like me in them. You want me to read those books? No, I want to know the experience of black people in this country. And so, you know who my ancient books are? Booker T. Washington, Up From Slavery, The Negro in Business. And you know what he was talking about? In 1900, lack of access to capital for black entrepreneurs. The same thing we're talking about in 2021. Our education system being jacked up and resulting in poor results. Carter Guy and Woodson published a whole book on it in 1933. And here we are in 2021 
having the same issues, same discussions. And so there's power when you go back and read these old texts. The W.B. Du Bois, the souls of black folks, talking about race relations in this country. And if you want to understand the issues that are coming up over and over again, you've got to go back and look at these texts. But this is a little bit of a rant. I know I get fired up. This is, excites me. I enjoy talking about this. Um, and I'm going through a journey myself as I, as I learn and I grow and I become a scholar. I already am a scholar. I write every morning. I read every day. And I'm working on ways to communicate my thoughts to the world, leveraging podcasting and leveraging writing. And then also the businesses and the nonprofit, all the stuff that I'm doing. But the best part about it is it just allows me to make an impact. And I get to meet amazing youth like Michelle on today's show. So this is her first time. I think this was her first like interview podcast. So she was super nervous. But she did a great job. And I, I really think you guys are going to enjoy hearing her perspective and letting her make the case on why she thinks an African-centered education is so important for her and her peers. And I hope you really listen to this with an open mind because at the end of the day, are there right and wrong answers? Depends on how you look at the world. But what I will tell you is having a closed mind, not listening to others, having an ego, that won't move us very far. And you know what? Just giving someone an opportunity to share their point of view goes a long way. And just take it and reflect on it and think about it and ask yourself, what would different look like? How have people done it for hundreds of thousands of years? Just because we they see things done one way now doesn't mean it's always been done that way. And sometimes we can lose, how do I say this? Sometimes we can equate morality with politics, where stuff is passed and the further distance we get from when it was passed, we take it as a moral thing because it's been so ingrained in our society at this point, we develop our own mythologies around it. And that happens with a lot of stuff in this country. But enough about me ranting and raving. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Michelle, Michelle Kelsick from the Creation Academy. And I also want you to do me a favor before you listen is to head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'd also appreciate if you rated and reviewed this show for us on iTunes and shared it with others in your network. This is an organic show, y'all. I don't get paid for this show. This is just a show to come out here and share the perspective and have some deep dialogue on thoughts that are on my mind as a black veteran because a lot of times we don't hear what's on our minds. And you're probably curious about it. 
And I just decided to build a platform and I don't want it to be topical. I could come on here and talk about every shooting that happens and everything and blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't get to the core of my being. And I'm just opening myself up to you all and my guest to just invite you in on some of these really, really deep and open conversations from the perspective of a black veteran as we explore race, culture, and business. So if you wouldn't mind sharing this show with someone else um, and showing us some love, I'd really appreciate it. And I really hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you enjoyed my, my rant here at the beginning. And always, I truly appreciate you for sharing your time with me and I hope you enjoy today's show. And we are live. What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the legendary Confessions of a Native Son, where we speak truth to power. I'm your host, the one and only Iron Mike Stedman. Man, I feel like I'm always having a special guest, but that's how amazing the people are in my life. But uh, in keeping with that tradition, I have a very special guest today, one of my thrivers, right? So many of y'all know I've been running a uh, small business incubator for youth and young adults here in the city of Newark. We just wrapped up our second cohort and we're giving out some micro grants uh, this week. And uh, I brought one of the one of my thrivers on uh, to talk to you on the podcast because she's doing some really exciting stuff. Uh, she's going to tell you about it. And uh, I'm super excited to have her here today with us. So without further ado, I'm happy to introduce Michelle Kelsick. What's going on, Michelle? <laughs> Hello. Thank you for having me. No, nah, thanks for joining the platform. She used to always beat me up, y'all, because I would get on the Thrive calls because we're doing it virtual. Our uh, incubator is virtual. And I kept calling her M- Michelle, Michelle, Michelle. And then she finally jumped on one day and was like, it's Michelle. Right? <laughs> Just to correct me. Okay. Um, well, I'm Michelle Kelsick, and um, I joined Thrive really to understand a little bit more about business. And I think what Mike is doing for the community is really good, and it really helped me. Um, so, like, it's a business incubator, and we learned a lot about how to start a business and sort of the, the idea, the idea stage and really creating it and marketing it to your audience. And I thought that was very helpful, and it really helped me in my business. I appreciate that, Michelle. But you got to let people know who you are first. I appreciate the shout out for Thrive, but we got to, this is an opportunity to highlight you. So um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience and talk to them a little about Creation Academy. Okay, yeah. So my business is Creation Academy and it's an African-centered company who's focused on really out getting African students, African kids, um, the opportunity to learn about their history and really understand where they come from. Because in America and in many other European countries, we don't really get the opportunity to learn who we are. So with Creation Academy, we wanted to really bring that to students. And how old are you, Michelle? I'm 17. When did you start Creation Academy? I started it last summer. So a year. What? What? Um, I don't want to ruin the story, but, you know, what led you to, to start it? Um. I really found for myself that the ability to learn where I came from really helped me and develop who I was as a person. And so I wanted to give that to other students, having them have other African kids, not in just America, but around the world, because there's sort of this holding of information that only the certain people can have it and understand it. But I wanted to, you know, really give it to many kids because it really changed my life and how I understand who I was. Now, what's your ethnicity and background? 
Uh, my dad is Caribbean and my mom is African-American. So, yeah. I really, like, my dad being Caribbean, honestly, that really helped sort of, I don't know. Well, when it's like, when we live in America, it's sort of this identity that African-Americans are not African and sort of that, that separation. And because my dad was Caribbean, it was sort of like the reggae music and the understanding of that we're all one really helped me understand that. And you decided to, I'm going to say, let me ask you this. Sorry. Um, so what gave you the confidence to turn this into a business, especially at 16? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just did it. Something told me to just do it. And I did. Uh, were you getting a lot of help with it? Not really. I didn't tell my parents at first because I didn't know what they were going to think. But as I started to like grow and like get good feedback from people like you and, you know, social media and people really liked it, then that's when I told my parents. But yeah, I'm just trying, I'm interested to think, right? Like a lot of times we identify problems in our community, right? Particularly in the black community, whether it's education, health, wellness, whatever. But something gave you the insight at an early age to say, hey, I want to build this around a business. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes we can be very socially driven, which is fine. But a lot of times we don't tie it to like the economic piece. And so I'm just curious to see, like, again, let's go a little bit deeper. Why, where did the entrepreneur aspect of this come from? Mm. Well, I would say that I really don't. I think I've always wanted to start a business, right? I've always had this sort of mentality that I didn't want to work for other people and sort of my instinct to want to start a business. And I found something that I was passionate about, which was African history and sort of merging this idea. I was like, hey, I can make this into a business. Why not do something that I'm passionate about? That's dope. And she's not playing around, y'all. She came to Thrive and, you know, the, we have the first session and, you know, we have all the kids introduce themselves and they introduce their businesses. But I was blown away. Because she didn't mention it, but she runs a podcast um, for her company, Creation Academy. And she's probably got about 15 episodes or so on various topics within the African-centered education. And as a podcast producer, someone who runs their own uh, media company, podcast first media company, it is very challenging to launch a podcast. And so that let me know that uh, we're dealing with a talented uh, young woman here. And uh, the, the sky is the future for her. Now, while I have her on the platform, I do want to do a deep dive with her um before we get into the theme of the, today's discussion around Thrive, because one of the reasons we launched this program is I just had this uh, theory that, you know, young black and brown kids uh, don't get exposed to a lot of entrepreneurship. And by the time we do, you know, we tend to be 25, 30 and up or 30 and up, and we're expected to hit a home run our first time out the gate. And as an entrepreneur, um, I, I've been full time uh, pretty much about three years now. And one of the things I've come across in meaning entrepreneurs is, very few of them are successful uh, the first time they launch a venture. It's usually that second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth venture. And so uh, the concept behind Thrive is to get uh, young entrepreneurs like Michelle uh, swinging at the plate sooner rather than later so she can make the mistakes, learn from them, and uh, continue to make a successful business and build upon those lessons. So I want to talk to her real quick about Thrive. So uh, Michelle, talk to us about how you found the program. Well, I've actually found the program through one of your first cohort students, um, Daniela, and I was with her in another program, entrepreneur program, and she told me about this one. So that's how I really found Thrive. Uh, what impressed you about it initially or what were your first uh, reaction initially? 
well, my first reaction was like, oh, this is cool, you know, and I read the bio. It's like, oh, you get a free like uh, mentorship and um, like access to the boxing gym. So I was like, OK, yeah, that sounds cool. And why not? Was there anything that stood out to you in particular? Like, yeah, like sign me up. I think the mentorship really, really sold it for me because I was like, okay, and throughout my business career, you obviously need a mentor and somebody who can help you along the way. So if I can have the ability to get that for free and from somebody who looks like me, then why not? The reason I'm asking you these questions too is when I first launched the program, right? I didn't get a lot of signups and I had to redo the website because the website was too corporate looking. You know, so I had it speaking to donors, but I didn't have it speaking to talent like you. Yeah. And so that's why I went in and wrote the bio and wrote all that stuff. And so that's why I'm asking that feedback in a sense of, you know, how was it when you actually came to the website? I think also the video, the video really stood out. Good. All right. Let me say, let me ask you this too. Um, all right. So you go to the website, you see the video, um, you see all the stuff and then you show up to the first session, right? I want to know what was your expectation going in and what did you actually get after that first session? Um, I would say after the first session, I really got motivated to actually start my, like start diving deep into my business and the meaning behind it and why was I doing it? Because during the first session, you were really like motivating and you were like, hey guys, yo, I'm Mike Stedman and so-and-so, and this is what we're going to learn today. So I was like, yeah, this sounds like you were really motivating. So that really helped me like, okay, yeah, this is a good program. Talk to us about where your business went from uh, week one until we wrapped up the program. Cause we do for our listeners out there, we do really four uh, week um, workshop sessions on how to start a small, how to start a small business, finance, marketing, um, and leadership. And then we had two Q and a sessions. So some working sessions. And so uh, we just wrapped up the last uh, Q and a uh, working session last week and they'll get um, their prize money um, or micro grants um, at the, at the end of this week. So I'm curious to hear your progress over the course of the program with your business. Um, so in the beginning before Thrive, my business, I had the idea, right? But it really wasn't solidified, like the vision and where I wanted to go and how was how I was going to be able to expand that and like and expand that, right? So throughout Thrive, I felt like the transformation for my business was really internal. It really wasn't physical because it's not always about, you know, your achieving like multiple people following you or stuff like that. It really was, it really helped me like understand what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go with my business. Just to give you some example, the feedback we gave Michelle was, uh, you know, she's focused on this African center education. And so she's really going after parents and teachers. So she's been posting, she's been focusing a lot of her efforts on Instagram, but one of her challenges is, is Instagram where her perfect customer is more often than not. No. Right. So she's got a lot of kids following her. And I've been encouraging her that she's got to find the groups where her perfect customers are located at. So getting in front of those teachers, um, getting in front of um, parents and kind of reverse engineering it. So where do they spend their time? What social media platforms are they on? How do you communicate in the way that they actually want to engage her business? And so she just created her first LinkedIn account. Uh, I'm going to show her some love on there. She's building that out. But that's just a little bit of an example of some of the stuff we're doing. Do you have a paid client yet, Michelle? Um, no, not yet. But um, there are people who sign up for my um, emailing list. Yeah. And one of the things we're also going to do is um, we're going to produce her podcast for us. So we're going to help her with her podcast, get it in front of um, the target audience, do a little rebrand. Because right now her company is named Creation Academy. 
But what I was doing before we went live on here, I was just letting her know that one of the challenges for us starting businesses is, you know, people launch businesses like their ESPN and Coca-Cola, right? Everybody knows who Coca-Cola is. Everybody knows who ESPN is. But if you launch a business and give it a name, um, her name's Creation Academy, a lot of people don't know what that is, right? And so what I've been encouraging her to do and also our other thrivers and veterans out there that are listening, when you launch a business, you want to create it around, uh, you want to brand it around what people are searching for and not just any people, your perfect customer. So I told her, I think a good name for a podcast is an African-centered education instead of the Creation Academy podcast. And that, you know, um, even the website and the company building it around this African-centered thing to make it easier for our perfect customers um, to find her. Now, Michelle, I'm going to ask you this. What was the biggest takeaway you took from the program? What was your- the biggest? Oh, okay. So the biggest takeaway that I took away. Oh, well, some, the, yeah, you're- I took away basically that you, you're not always going to win an idea that you're not always going to be successful. Well, you're going to be successful, but there's always ups and downs. Right. And for me in the beginning, I, when I, when I didn't like see the reaction from, okay, hold on. Sorry. You're good. You're good. You got it. Let's roll. We're rolling. Okay, so when I didn't see the reaction that I thought I was going to get from social media and other platforms, I kind of got disappointed. But from your program, it really taught me that you're you're not always going to see the things that you want to see and to keep going because downfalls and pitfalls are okay. And that just shows that you're going to grow. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's like a podcast. You're running a podcast. When you first start, no one's listening, right? You got like one or two listeners. But half the thing is getting it in front of the right people. And it just takes time. You got to test and you got to be persistent. So I'm going to I'm going to help you with that. Now, let me ask you this. How can we improve the program? And don't just talk to me. Talk to our listeners out there, too. Um, I think you can improve the program by making it more visual. And what I mean by this is that you say like. During those sessions, there's a lot of things that are said, but then when I get off of the session, it's like, okay, well, how do I implement this? Like, okay, my business is this, but then how do I like do it for me and my business and like really get the effects of what you were actually saying and the gems that you were dropping during the sessions? So I think sort of more of that kind of helped. All right. Like a mind map or something, you know, just kind of having a visual representation. Oh, you're here. These are the things you need to do to get here, et cetera. Or having better, like you said, the visuals and the presentation. For our listeners out there, right? I need you to plug it. Because um, we got a lot of people, people on this podcast actually support it. What do you want them to know about the program? And uh, it's what it what it means to have a program like that here in Newark. Well, I think that if you know people or you know young entrepreneurs who want to start a business and need help, like really finalizing the idea and getting started and need that push, I think Thrive is a really good program for that because they allow you a space where you can talk with other students as well as have a mentor and also have access to people talking to you about finance and legal stuff. So I think that's a really good route if you have people you know that want to get a boost in their business. Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, we'll talk. I'll probably give a, a little bit of a plug for Thrive um, some more in the introduction for this show. Um, but essentially, man, we're just trying to help support young men and women of color here in the inner city. I realized with Ironbound, our non, with Ironbound Boxing, you know, initially we started as a, just a boxing gym and meant to keep kids out the streets and in the gym. And one of the things I realized over time as I've grown as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a leader here within the city of Newark, that keeping kids uh, inside uh, is like a Band-Aid on a broken leg. You know, if we want to lower crime, if we want to lower violence, we want to do all these things, we need to create 
uh, meaningful employment opportunities for them, whether they're working for somebody or they're starting their own business. And so that's why at Ironbound Boxing and Education, we're focused on that free amateur boxing, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities for Newark youth and young adults. And, you know, the reason I start our start programs like Thrive is for Michelle, you know, it's great. I was like blown away. And so I appreciate you um, sharing insight for our audience on that. And uh, it's important to do because a lot of them aren't in Newark. They don't really get to, to hear from you all. They just support it. And so I thought it'd be important to do a quick uh, recap on that. But we're actually here today to talk about an African-centered education. And so before we do a deep dive in that, we got to go in the tradition of the show and give a confession. And I'll go first. And I'll tell y'all, a lot of y'all might be listening to us. Listen, a lot of you that are listening to, to this might be surprised, but I actually do believe in an African-centered education. Um, uh, Michelle and I have been uh, trading information back and forth. She actually put me on uh, a leader in the space. What's his name? I got his book here, To Educate a People, Thoughts from the Center, Malawumu K. Baruti. Um, and he runs, I forgot the name of his company. Uh, you, you know what the name of his company is, Michelle? Um, no, I don't remember. African Warrior Scholar. That's what it is. It's African Warrior Scholar. And the thing he talks about is this idea of basically what is it, what is education in the first place? And how are we as African people, what are we as African people doing to ensure the survival of our culture? Culture that has carried over from Africa to America, from everything, from the way we look, the way we talk and all the kind of stuff that's been contrasted as negative in a traditional European education. And so when you listen to a lot of my previous podcasts, like I'm not the biggest fan of the public education system. I think it's the biggest, um, how do I say this? The biggest mistake African-American people have made in this country is handing over the education of our children to others, right? Um, and we're seeing the effects of that now. You know, the on this idea that we can go to, our kids can go to school for, you know, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, still not know how to read, write, get a job. I mean, what are we doing? You know, and now with the onslaught of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's really turned education upside down, have a lot of kids. I mean, if we thought the achievement gap was a thing before, you know, imagine after this, uh, this pandemic. And so, you know, I just don't think we can succeed in the traditional education system. And I think that African centered education is a solution. And if, at the very least, we need to take ownership of the education of our people, uh, the curriculum, the books they're reading, everything. Because I grew up in an environment where I, I mean, I didn't read my first book till the Naval Academy, really, because I just didn't have any agency in a lot of the text I was given. And when you're trying to cultivate the, the, the experience of reading and you want people to read, especially young men of color, they need books to start out with that are inspiring them, you know, that they can really get behind, not like Little Women or Tessa D'Urbervilles and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm a fan of an African-centered education. I'm actually studying it myself because I want to implement it and apply a lot of these principles and even what I do um, with Thrive. And so that's my confession. I believe in it. Okay, so my confession is that I think the African-centered education is really the future for African people. If we want to develop and grow and get past all the struggles that we're currently facing, right? So when we talk about, you know, Black Lives Matter and police brutality and not having enough people in government that represent us, what for me, what I believe is the core of that is not knowing who we are, because if we understand the power that we have and just giving this power to young children to understand that, OK, you are an African and here's your history, not letting a European tell you who you are. 
tell you that you're indifferent to them because of physical features or stuff like that. And if we allow, like Mike said, if we allow other people to teach our children, they're telling, they're projecting their image of us into our minds. And then we're having children growing up, becoming these, these ideas of what they think they are instead of who they really are. So I really believe that African centered education is something that we need to hold tight and really push it to our children. Because if we create the next generation without knowing who you are, somebody else is going to tell them who they are, that you're this, that you're a thug, that you don't have no right to be here because of who you are. But once, if you truly know who you are, then nobody else can tell you that. Michelle, let me ask you this. I appreciate you sharing that. You Are you a straight A student? No. I'm a, like, I have A's, mainly A's, but like some B's. Do you ever get recognized any like academic awards or anything? Yeah. Oh, like the Young Entrepreneurs Award and all that kind of stuff? Well, I get like, you know, honor roll and stuff like that. All right. That's good. I was about to say, because if they're not, I'm about to call, I'm about to call your school right now. I'm like, what are we doing with this talent? But I appreciate you sharing and I'm excited to do a deep dive uh, on the topic. But before we do that, we got to give a shout out to our sponsors. First, I got to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Head over to www.realdope.coffee and place your order today. It is a black owned, veteran owned, minority owned business that's doing it for the culture. Shout out to my brother, Mike Lloyd, my co-producer who runs the company with him and uh, his beautiful wife, Michelle. Also got, I'm also happy to announce we got a new sponsor, Sincerely Body, a woman led company that's Harlem based and specialized in handcrafted body care that relieves, restores and relaxes. Their products help you feel better naturally. If you're suffering from aches and pains and don't want over-the-counter drugs or medication, be sure to check them out. They have bath salts, balms, and oils to relax the body and soothe the soul. Head over to www.sincerelybade. That's bade with B-A-D-E dot com. And listen, I like giving these sponsors uh, this platform because I believe in economic empowerment for uh, people of color. Um, and as a, somebody who has a platform, it's an honor to be able to, to give them a shout out on here. So be sure you go ahead and check them out, man. This is about economic empowering and uplifting the culture through media and entrepreneurship. So check them out. All right, Michelle, you're in the spotlight now. You know, she got a little neck roll. She's ready. All right, y'all. The theme of today's show is the case for an African centered education. And so Michelle, Michelle, sorry, I want you to do a deep dive in explaining what an African-centered education means for our listeners. Okay, so African-centered education is really putting the identity of who you are, basically African, and putting that at the center of your education. So for example, Europeans, they put their culture and who they are at the center of the American education system. It's everywhere you go. You learn about Isaac Newton, you learn about Washington, you learn about all these people who are European, who have had a ideal figure who are an ideal figure in their culture but we don't learn about who's who are the ideal figures in our society we don't learn about the ancient kings and queens of africa and people like that and what they did and how they contributed to the global society and not just africa itself so we learn about how the constitution was such an amazing thing and it helped so many countries develop their own constitutions but we don't learn about how african ancient civilizations 
um, connected and affected how the world operates today. So I think African-centered education is really putting our culture at the center of how we learn and how we understand things. Where did you first come across this? Come across African-centered education? Well, I don't, I don't think it would really be like I came across it. I just learned. So my father was really the one who helped me understand African people and African education. And he always used to show me like documentaries about Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. And these were really powerful documentaries that came from the perspective of African people. So it showed me, okay, like, wow, I have a voice. I'm powerful. This is what we can do as a people if we come together. So then I just started going on a dive, a deeper dive, like, okay, Michael Max said this, what does this mean? Okay, let's read this book. Let's understand this. Let's watch this lecture. And it just became a rabbit hole for me. And I I understood more. I feel like when I think of, you know, like the Malcolm X's and like you say, the Martin Luther King's and the Booker T. Washington's and that's like the higher level, right? Like those are the Mm -hmm. ones we come across. But what impresses me with you, you've done a deep dive on some of the more, not necessarily radical figures, but the ones you really have to go look for. Like when I first reached out to you and I was like, hey, I'm interested in learning more about African-centered education. And you sent me Baruti, right? I'm interested in learning how you came across these type of figures. Um, well, I would just really say YouTube videos. YouTube has everything nowadays. But I think just watching old lectures from Baruti and other elders, I really don't know them by name, but I know them by what they teach. So um, I would say... Um, Africa is for Africans. I forgot his name. Oh, well, somebody else I listened to is Dr. Juwanza Kunjufu. Um, you know, he's got a, I might run his lecture on this podcast, to be honest, uh, to be popular or smart, the black peer group, um, where he has this, basically this lecture series where he's sitting around and talking about, you know, why we underperform in school and the, the case for a collective education. Um, who are some other figures that you listen to? Okay, um, so Marcus Garvey, that's what his name was. Africa is for Africans. He was a Jamaican um, writer and he came to America and South America and all around the world. And he basically studied all these people. And he was basically one of the head leaders in the African is for African movements and really trying to get Africans to go to back, back to Africa and really build. So I think just listening to lectures in YouTube helped me come about all these different people who are really pushing this African-centered agenda. So it's for people my age, right? We call it the woke movement. You know, this, this idea that like all of a sudden you're conscious and you see all these crazy people going back and forth on YouTube now about being conscious, being conscious, being conscious. But I look at, you know, an African-centered education, when you just become more aware, this idea that like, man, why am I always on the fringes of history? You mentioned right. before about the, the the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. We're always told this stuff from the perspective of the European. We're never told right. this from the perspective of African-Americans, you know. Uh, but I'm curious to hear when we call this cognitive dissonance, right? You familiar with the term cognitive dissonance? To where we feel one thing and we're thinking something, but it goes with against like our culture or something else. So like I'll give you an example. I'm a veteran, Okay. I'm obviously mm-hmm. African-American. I'm patriot. I'm happy. You know what I mean? I love my country. But on the other side, right, I feel cognitive distance because I'm also a black man and I see the police mm-hmm. brutality and I see all the craziness that goes on with far right, radical, whatever, you know, the Confederate flags and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So that's cognitive dissonance. When you became aware and you start to understand African-centered education, how did it feel to be inside the classroom? 
Um, yeah, that's a really, that's a big one. Um, so when I became more aware about stuff that was going on and just basically my culture and who I was, when it came to the classroom, because most of my history teachers are white. So it's just them talking about how amazing America is. And, you know, it's this amazing place. But me knowing, okay, yeah, there's two sides to the coin and America is amazing for you, but is it amazing for me? And being in that environment, I would say it's, it's tough because I'm, I don't want to waste my energy, you know, trying to combat a teacher who's trying to do their job, but is their job helping me? Is their job helping me become who, like understand who I am? No, but that I feel like that's a, just a part of the system and how the system works. And that's what we're trying to say is basically the teacher is teaching from a European perspective, but me understanding who I am, I'm not going to feel indifferent because that's what they believe. And that's their culture. They're prepared. What's it called? Portray- Portraying the America from the culture that they see it from. Has this put you in conflict with any teachers? Um, Not really. I don't really talk to them, so. And you said all your teachers, the history teachers are white. You live in a black city, though. <laughs> right. You know? uh, what about your other teachers? Um, I wouldn't say they're they're just teachers. You know, they just they do their job and they clock out. They're not really here for the community. Does that affect you when you see that? When you see teachers that don't look like you and you know they don't live in the community? Yes, because I feel so powerful. I feel so passionate about teaching. Teaching is really something that helped me. Teachers like Barunti, teachers like Marcus Garvey and all these other people who are teaching to African people and telling them, yo, this is a movement and let's let's go. Let's build up Africa. Let's build up this continent. Let's build up who we are. So yes, it does affect me. And I really think about how does it affect other kids who are not aware of who they are, who just look like me, them absorbing this information and not understanding and really contextualizing it. So as an entrepreneur, Michelle, you know, one of the things we do is we identify a problem and we come with a solution. So I know a lot of my listeners are going to be hearing this because I have white listeners, I have black listeners, and they might not necessarily be buying the African center education thing. Right. So let's talk about the problem. Okay. Black people in this country are depressed. A lot of our young black men and women inside these classrooms are depressed. They're underperforming. They don't have teachers that look like them. They go to communities that are impoverished, full of violence, crime, all kind of stuff. Right. And then um, on top of that, they're getting told that they're underperforming. Okay, so an African centered education, how does it solve that issue? I think it solves the issue at the core with identity. Right. It's like, okay, I live, I have, I'm going through all these problems and they're really systematic and they really hit hard and they, they come at so many angles. So when you look inside and you say, okay, look, I'm an African, I live in America and this is my circumstances, but I know who I am and I'm not going to let the circumstances or the oppression affect me because I know who I am and I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm solid with who I am. So just attacking the identity piece of knowing who you are is is big because if you know who you are, then the systems that are oppressing you cannot get into your mind. You feel you got I me? I do. And I'll tell you, so in my studies of African center education, it tells us that it really focuses on the individual, but the individual meant to support the collective. collective. It's not a selfish yes. type of education, but it's this idea of really knowing yourself and understanding who, how, you know, you're basically just really the study, like a practice like doing a deep dive of understanding why and ask the questions. And what I don't think a lot of people realize is when you really study history, 
And you go into the sense of like, who, who gave this definition to this? Why is it called this, et cetera? You start to understand that education is very political. And I want Michelle to talk about that because she has an episode of her podcast around it. Um, well, I think that podcast was more of talking about how if we educate kids on political systems and stuff of that nature and how would they perform um, in the political activity. So if we told students, okay, this is uh, these are all the elections that are going on, not just the presidential election, how would then that affect the seats in Congress and how many people of color get into Congress or the Senate? So really educating students about the political process was what that podcast was really about. Got it. We're still going to have discussion on political education, though. Right? right. So Amos Wilson, Dr. Amos Wilson, he wrote a book called The Falsification of African Consciousness, The Black Power Blueprint. And one of the things he talks about is education by default is political, you know, because yeah. it's meant to maintain a certain power structure. Um, and so when we think about education here in America, right, the system, the system works exactly like it's supposed to work. Our education system is not built to the survival of black and brown people. Our education system is built for the survival of capitalism, right? And a lot of times it can go at conflict when you think about us as a people because right now we suck at capitalism, you know? Because why? We, last time I checked, uh, African Americans own less than 2% of businesses in this country. And that was before, I know, let me rephrase that. If you're an African American business owner, you represent less than 2% of your population prior to COVID-19, Okay. Um, so there's that piece there. When you talk about the education system, we can't, we're not performing in it, right? We're chasing this achievement gap, but we're still underrepresented at the majority of universities in this country. Um, and so when you think about the system, it works just like it was supposed to work. You know, we're going out there as laborers and jobs. We're not really meant to really question the system. You know what I mean? They're not going to teach that to you in the classroom. They're not going to ask you the deep questions. And so it goes back to what does education mean in the first place? Right. And I think to what you're saying about the agenda, it's like they're only teaching you to put you in a job or put you in a place that does not even help you. You're going to get a job that you're working for a white company whose agenda may be to destroy your community, to put drugs into the community, to further um, dismantle the black family and stuff of that nature. Right. So I think when you talk about the political agenda, basically, of education, it's like you were saying, it's really not meant to help us. And I feel like the foundation of education, the whole purpose of education is to prepare a society of leaders and also to prepare a society of thinkers. If we have the ability to have students who can think on their own and understand how they can operate in a society to help the society grow, you know, and I feel like the system today is really just preparing workers to work for the, the corporate people in America. Have you ever heard somebody say, think black? Malcolm X also used to say it all the time. Some people might associate no. thinking black as negative, but in a sense of like, we wake up every day and I literally believe I wake up every day and thinking, how can I uplift and empower my people? You know? right. Education, um, financially, you know, and just thinking through and working through it. And I feel like it's our responsibility too, you know, because I don't think anybody else is going to do it for us. So when I say, you know, I think when Malcolm was talking about think black, that's what he meant in a sense of, is this going to affect my people? How does this affect my people? You know, and he means black and brown, black people. Malcolm was talking about. Um, but, you know, obviously we're in Newark. So we got black, we got Latino, we got all these different, different groups. And, you know, to be honest, they all connect back to the diaspora. You know, we're just mm -hmm. so far away from it, you know, that it's hard to make right. those connections sometimes. 
Um, but just this understanding of like the practice and thinking. And I'll tell you this, Michelle, for me, right. I'm an entrepreneur. I went to, you know, I went to Naval Academy. I've gone to Rutgers. I started a business, but I've always felt this cognitive dissonance again, because the way I'm told to be a business owner has gone against what uh, they teach us. You know, prior to George Floyd, right. I would go to mentors about, Hey, I'm doing ironbound. We're socially driven. I literally had mentors that were, I want to call them a mentor. I had potential mentors that literally told me to drop the, drop the social aspect of my brand, you know, to focus on the for-profit, don't worry about the non-profit, et cetera, et cetera. Then what happens? George Floyd, boom, right? And what do you think happens? Ironbound stock went up because now all of a sudden these ever America's looking around, all of a sudden America finds out we're all black, right? Black people find out they're black too. They're like, huh? You know, and they're like, we got to do something to help uplift the black community. And I'm like, no, they start looking at me. I'm like, yo, man, we've been in the fight, you know? So all of a sudden, all the people, it's like it flipped, right? All the things that were negative before in business owners' eyes and whatever is all of a sudden a positive. And so now you see what? All these companies that are trying to promote racial equity and give back and blah, 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 right? But before, uh, before it was like there was cognitive dissonance there, you know? And so now we see the, the shift. Right. And I think we have to really think about the intentions of those companies. It's like, why are you, why are you want why do you want to appeal to us now? Why, why do we have your best interest now? And if we really understand, okay, yeah, they're only doing that to get us to help work for them or help push their own agenda. And it really comes back to, you know, their whole political purpose. And us as African people, I feel like we need to understand now who is our friend and who is our enemy and really understanding, okay, look, these companies don't have our best interest. They just appeal. They just try to show that they, we have, that they have our best interest, but they really don't. So it's like, okay, if we can band together and really economically do something, how detri- how much detriment would these companies really have? Because if we think about it, right, the hair business, hair, um, the hair companies and all these other companies that black people fuel, make so much money. But if we were to actually take that money, use it economically and strategically, how much would we be able to achieve if we all just work together? And I think that also goes to the part of division. It's like, we're all divided. So how can we actually come together? And we talk about like Willie Lynch and all these people during back in slavery who really cemented this sort of slave mentality. It's like, okay, there's the overseer and there's us working on the plantation. And there's sort of this division. It's like, okay, yeah, I don't like you. You don't like me. But we need to come together to really achieve something. So like back to the agenda at hand, it's really like these companies have their own agenda and us feeding into their agenda is not going to make us any better. We need to out, think outside of the box just because Prudential or Verizon says, yeah, we need more black workers. We, we go for we're for Black Lives Matter. Does that really mean that they're for Black Lives Matter if they say it out of their mouth? And the, just for clarification, I think what you're also saying is if this didn't affect their bottom line, would they be supporting, you know, financial and racial equity of black people, black and brown people? And one of the things I'll tell you, it, it, it bothers me in a sense of like a lot of. I feel like a lot of what I see come out are the same. The way we're trying to solve these issues within black, the black community are using the same systems that created them in the first place. When you think about African centered education, right. It's talking about black capitalism, you know, strategies for black people by black people to ensure the survival of black people, you know? And so it's like, okay, 
uh, I'll give you all an example out there. Let's say um, one of the big things we have right now is obviously the pandemic has decimated small business in black communities. Okay. We need to be thinking in the collective, you know, this idea of co-ops and maybe we come together and, you know, you incubate your business out of here. You can, they're not going to teach you that in traditional education, you know, because we have in a very individualistic society in here in America, but an African centered education is the opposite of individualistic. It's the community. Right. This is an American thing now. Like if you grew up in a village in Africa, you know, 300, 400 years ago. Right. You wouldn't come back to your community with uh, an elephant or something and eat it all to yourself. Right. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. Right. That was food for the community. You get what I'm saying? And when you study this stuff, you know, it's like you said, elders, you know how we call and it carries over to us here in America. But we just sometimes we just don't we don't really even catch it. You know, like black people, we're always like, what's up, my brother? You know, don't know him from nothing. Never mind. What's up, brother? You know, auntie, uncle, we call this, it's always this family thing. And that's our lineage. That's that history and that culture. That's that stuff passed down through us over the years. Yeah. And I think when you talk about elders, I think something very important to point out is that you rarely see African-Americans put their grandma or their great grandfather in a nursing home, right? They keep them at the home and they take care of them because elders have power. And when it comes to African centered education, elders are the center, like they're the, they're the library. They know, they have all the knowledge, they hold all the knowledge. So you learn and you seek and you seek from them. Right. But when it comes to the European society and the European like education system, they have nursing homes. They put their elders away because they don't want them, right? They don't see them as something worthy of knowledge, something that should be cherished, right? So I think that the separate, something totally separate from African-centered education and European-centered education is the way we treat our elders, the way we treat our people. And like you said, it's the community. If we have food, you're going to share it with everyone else and not just keep it to yourself. I uh, On one of the previous podcasts, I had a guest on here. Uh, named Yusef Henriquez, who was studying the human genome and how trauma is passed down in the human bloodstream. And one of the things I had become aware of is, you know, when I was younger growing up in Texas, you know, that, or even here, you know, you meet people, the elders, and they're like, we're talking to our elders, you know, and you're like, what are you talking about? You ain't talking about elders. But now the science is actually starting to catch up. This idea that culture and tradition and pain and the lessons learned is actually passed down to us scientifically. And so it was real interesting to hear that. And one of the things we talked about, Michelle, too, was, um, you know, black people have had a plant based diet for freaking thousands of years. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, America, we're going to go juice and we're going to do this and do that. But we've been doing that for years. And so it's like, how do we get back on that system? Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's really something to talk about because we it's just society, right? We, they take something and they, they rebrand it. And they said, it's like, oh, this is this new thing. But if you don't understand your history and you don't understand where you come from, then you won't realize that this is something you've been doing for so long. This is something that, you know, you want to. She said she doesn't know what to say, y'all. She's nervous. She's like, I'm getting on this big platform, but she's doing great, y'all. We got to give her some words of encouragement, man. That's why we're going to, we're going to get her podcast right. But no, you're spot on, you know, um, they repurpose it. They rebrand it like the cannabis industry, right. like they're calling it flower and all this other you know, stuff now. And they, they rebrand it and they make marijuana all safe and fun and happy after locking black people up uh, for hundreds of years. Well, not when did marijuana become legal? Not hundreds of years, but, you know, they've been locking black people up so long. I, I've lost count. 
I think something to, to point out is that they like to rebrand our culture. And it's something that many people know of, but like culture, cultural appropriation. And when they take it, they make it seem like something like it's something better than it was before. Or they make it seem like now because they have it, it's something good. And they make our young African kids feel like they're indifferent because they don't look a certain way or something like like stuff like that. She's got her mom there. She's got her mom next to her coaching her, y'all. She's nervous. She got her show notes. That's good. Now, Michelle, I was listening to your podcast and you caught on. You mentioned something that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about before. Um, and I've come to this conclusion in my own studies is even with voodoo. Right. And for the full transparency, right. yo, I'm not a voodoo person. You don't got to worry. I don't got dolls and stuff here. But it's more the idea mm-hmm. of everything that is brought from Africa. Right. You know, you kind of think about it. we know Zeus and we know all these crazy gods and all this kind of stuff that all these other uh, cultures studied and worship. We very rarely know anything about black people, you know, some of the stuff right. they brought over. And so that started to make the connection with voodoo and this sense of like, damn, everything that's negative. Why is it negative? It's because it contrasts against, you know, Christianity and what the European version of Christianity was taught. And so I want to hear you you talk a little bit about voodoo, Michelle. Um, well, I think voodoo has a negative connotation because mainstream European culture identifies it as something negative. Right. But basically what voodoo is, is it's just spirituality. It's a way, it's a way that African people, well, actually voodoo is one of the forms of Yoruba tradition, which is basically Yoruba culture is the cultures of Orisha. And they actually study different deities and stuff of that nature. But when we talk about spirituality and stuff of that, um, stuff like that, I think that the European demonized it when we came from Africa to America and around that diaspora, right? He demonized it because he didn't want us knowing who we were. And I sort of this spirituality and the culture, the singing, the dancing, that's basically what African spirituality is. So to demonize that is to demonize your inner, your inner spirit, right? To destroy the spirit. So when you take away somebody's culture, like Yoruba, um, voodoo, African spirituality, it's taking away a part of yourself, another part of yourself, right? Your spiritual connection to your culture, just like you have your physical, your clothing, your hair and stuff like that. There was the, the spiritual connection that many Africans had. So I think nowadays we have this African spirituality movement that's starting and more Africans are becoming more spiritual and understanding that, hey, the ancient Egyptians, they used crystals to help optimize their energy to help them become more Zen. And now we hear yoga and all this other stuff and white people using crystals and it's become mainstream now because white people have a face on it. But if we really think about it back in ancient times, Africans were doing this long before Europeans were. So we have to understand that history plays a role in many facets of our culture. What's interesting about what you said too, is I have come, and this is a confession on me, right? As I've gotten older, because there's stuff that happens in the universe that we can't always explain it. Sometimes we always don't have right. the words or the science for it, but we know there's something there, like a dream, the dream state. You know how like you'll have a bad dream with someone that you haven't talked to in a while, but you can sense they're in pain. And then you wake up and you're like, what's going on? You know, I just had a dream about so-and-so. And then you get an Instagram message or something. And they're like, hey, have you checked on, you know, somebody? You know, we haven't heard from them. And it's just like, dang, but you know, we are smart. Black people have always been smart. It just hasn't been recognized in the European centered education system, you know? And the question is, do we really need them to recognize us? Like 
I don't need a white man coming up to me and saying, wow, you're so smart. Like, no, thank you. But what we do need is African people to understand their power. And I think that's where African-centered uh, education really comes in. Because if you can identify your power and you can identify who you are as a person, where you come from and where you connect your people from, it's a powerful thing. Because we have so many people in America of different cultures. The Asians know where they come from and they know their history. The Hispanics know where they come from and they know their history. But it's only until we hit African-Americans who don't understand truly who they are. And I think that's that past trauma, but we need to get over it and feel like, okay, yes, I'm an African who lives in America, but it's it's a struggle to get African-Americans to identify with their Africanness. And it's that first step that we need to take to, un- to really unveil this whole cover. Now, you just brought up a good point. You mentioned a lot of other ethnic groups that still practice their, their culture, right? They have their Saturday schools right. and whatever. Talk to us about your study in terms of that, like how other groups are educating their children and contrast contrast it with what you see with uh, African-Americans? Well, I would say part of it is not knowing where you come from due to slavery, right? But I would say that it's, I mean, many other groups, they practice like, I mean, they have the language, one. I think one thing that's very important is the language. African-Americans, you're speaking English, which is the oppressor's language, right? And you don't have a sort of a tongue that connects you to the lineage. So Asians, they have Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Hispanics, they have Spanish, which is still a colonizer's language. But I feel like when you have a language, something, it connects, it connects you to that, that string, I guess. Yeah, I worked, you know, I used to work at the Jewish Community Center, JCC, I used to teach boxing. And they would have classes there, you know, on business, on all kinds of stuff for their kids. Um, I worked at St. Benedict School, St. Benedict's Prep here in Newark. And uh, every Saturday they would have like almost like an Indian school. Right. Because a lot of the workers right. would kind of bring their kids in and they did that. Um, so all these different groups, um, ethnic groups have this Saturday school to protect that culture. Um, and they, they use it to kind of complement American culture where versus us. We just go all in. Right. And we don't have anyone looking out for us in terms of making sure that we as black people and brown people. Um, are able to survive and thrive, you know, like we need business strategies for us by us. Right. And it goes back to what you're talking about of like the power of even just doing like a thrive where you see someone that looks like you, you know, and how that just gives you confidence. And imagine that in the classroom, we don't have people that have confidence. And so, you know, I really do think, um, I really do think it's powerful. Now you're going to have me, I'm telling you, have a lot of donors to Ironbound that are not black. You know, the majority of people that support our nonprofit are, to be quite frank, um, veterans from all over the country, you know, white veterans, black veterans. But I have a lot of white supporters. And so um, friends, best friends, you name it. Um, But, you know, to hear you talk like this, it might make them feel a little bit uncomfortable. What do you say to them? Um, (laughs) uh, Well, I'll say get uncomfortable because it's my story, my struggle, and I'm talking about it. So you're saying a lot of times we uh, we have to speak in a way that makes people feel comfortable without being able to speak our truth. Right. Like, I'm not here to appease white culture. And if you're offended, that's you. Now, I'll tell you this, though. When I started thinking like this and I started to go a little bit deeper, and this is why I did this platform. Confession of a Native Son is to allow me to continue this deep dive in the self, right? And articulate my thoughts, right. feelings, and emotions. But I get a lot of pushback from black people. You know, right. I've been called Hotep before. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, I'm the most anti-Hotep person ever. At least I thought I didn't know. You know, I didn't even know what Hotep was, to be honest, because people just 
said it was a negative thing. And this comment came up because I told someone, I said, hey, I don't believe in our traditional education system. You know, I think we need like an African-centered education. And I got called Hotep. Um, and so I'm curious to hear your experience talking like this with your peers and a parent, not your parents, because I know your mom is, you know, she's very cultural, cultural. Uh, but, you know, some of the peers and friends. Well, I think to, for African-Americans, for them to to negate something that is for them, they might not understand it. And it comes from all that cultural, you know, indoctrination of that. Why would I want to do that? Africa is so bad. Africa is so poor. I'm not African. I'm black and I'm this and I'm that. But we have to understand that they come from that perspective because that's what the society, right? The, the media wants them to do. They want them to separate themselves from the, from their continent, from the, who they are. So when I talk to my friends and stuff like that, I don't really have friends who talk about stuff like this. Um, and my peers and stuff like that. I don't really have peers who talk stuff like this. It's just basically me and my family members. And that's it. How about your family members? Have you gotten any pushback from any of them? Aunties and uncles? Oh, well, yeah, basically um, my Caribbean side of my family and my African-American side of my family, the older generation really don't understand what I'm trying to say. And I don't really force it on them because it's okay. You're stuck in your ways and that's okay. But for my younger siblings and my younger cousins, I really try to help them understand, okay, like, okay, let's learn about ancient Egypt today, or let's learn about a book today. Let's read about a book from a person of color to really push them to understand who they are. You're reading a book right now called, uh, I believe it's called Menticide. Can you talk yes. to us a little bit about that? So basically it's a book by Barunti and what he was really trying to say is that in America, Africans have a mental, mental side. Basically it's mental, mental illness and suicide put together. So we're mentally like corrupting and suiciding ourselves through the actions that we have, which were put forced upon us through European society. Um, I like to read one of the quotes that he has from his book. Um, Okay, he said, Africans here and now being lost in the wilderness of self-doubt and self-hate for so long that most do not know that there is a home to find a way back to, have fabricated a dire need to sub-integrate into the destructive whirlwind that pitches us aimlessly around. They do this for no reason other than that this chaos has tormented us for so long that it is all that we know and we think we know. Okay, and then there's another line that says we cannot treat with respect a people who study our way only in order to turn it into tools against us. So I think what he's really like talking about in his book is basically the mind of an African-American and how does our mind due to European colonization obstruct our view of who we are and destroys us in the end. I'll tell you, um, moving to Newark. Right. It was because I've been, you know, I'm a, I was an officer in the Marine Corps. Um, entrepreneur. And I was, I was, I submitted an essay to something today, but I found myself in a lot of environments where I was one of one. So literally the only black person in the room. Um, and when I moved to Newark, man, I just fell in love with just the Newark's got this grittiness, but I see myself in it, you know, and it could still be annoying at times. Like today when my security was harassing me because they didn't believe I lived in the building. You know, I was outside on my phone talking uh, to a friend at Harvard business school of all places. And the security was harassing me saying if I lived in the building and I showed them, yes, I live in the building. But I also wonder sometimes in a sense of like, if I was white, would they ask me these questions? Is it just assumed 
you know, until the point where I had to show them my key fob, right? But going back to what I was saying is, you know, I, I leave um, the South. I mean, I leave the South, yeah, to come to Newark. And man, I walk around Newark and somebody's like, what's up, King? And it's like, yo, man, who you call a King? You know, and I'm just like, damn, that feels nice. You know, and I'm like a 33-year-old black man getting called King. And I remember the first time it happened, I think I was like 29, 28, it hit. And it's like, damn, who's calling our kids Kings? You know, who's calling our, our women Queens? You know, who's, who's, who's allowing them to see the greatness within them? You know, I have a boxer, uh, his name's Keith Cologne. And, you know, he has these, he's been on video and TVs, whatever. And, you know, in one of the videos, he says, I just want to be great. And I have to remind him, man, you are already great. And so when you think about this African-centered education, it's just getting that strength back in us as a people, as a society, because there's, you know, Amos Wilson, he has this book, The Falsification of African Consciousness, and I haven't read it yet. But from everything I know of him and read about him, again, it's this idea of, you know, we're just kind of numb to who we are as a people. We don't even know, you know, like what you're talking about with voodoo, my (laughs) my family down south would be like, that's heathen talk. You know, right. but then you kind of just do the little bit of the history and say, where does this come from? And even the black church, you know, and how the Christianity that was put upon us was really more of an indoctrination. It's more of a separation and you you kind of pull. And so I think sometimes when you people hear the word oppressor, you know, it can make them feel uncomfortable again. But when you look at the history of this country, that's literally what it was. You know, slavery. I mean, Christianity um, was literally beat into us until we adopted it to the point to where it's so different from anything we ever knew before. Disconnected us from that spirituality piece, you know? And then I moved to Newark, Michelle, and everyone here is Muslim, you know? Now read this. I'm like, yo, what's going on? They're like, bro, you know, stop eating slab. I'm like, what's slab? Pork. I'm like, oh my God. But you start to awaken, you start to learn this kind of stuff. And it is really, really empowering and interesting. Yeah. And to the, to the Muslim piece, right? I think we also have to still understand that there was the Arab slave trade and Africans were indoctrinated with Muslim ideologies as well. And I've seen so many like of people that I've watched, right? They went from Christianity to Muslim to like spirituality. I think it's also like the spiritual journey and the understanding that many people have to take. And honestly, I was, I was raised in Jersey city and Jersey city. There was a lot of, of white people and a lot of Indian people and, you know, straight hair, but light skin. And, you know, as growing up, that really, that really hit me like, dang, I'm different. I was like one of the only African girls in my class growing up. And, you know, we used to walk around with our beads and, you know, as a young girl, but I also felt like this sense of I'm different. Like, why do I have to be different and stuff like that? But when I came to North, similar to you, uh, there was, it was different. Like I had more of people who looked like me and people who understand what I was talking about. So I felt like that connection as well. So this brings us to the creation Academy, right? We have these ideas, Michelle, people might think we're a little bit radical, right? But the understand, it goes back to the problem. What problem are we addressing? We're addressing despair. We're addressing economic poverty. I mean, we're addressing poverty, violence, all these issues that are plaguing the black community. And we're talking about a solution to address this. So if you're against this, then I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but you have a company, Creation Academy. OK, talk to us about how you're going to use this company to address these issues and how we can support and elevate you. 
Okay, so Creation Academy basically offers virtual lessons to kids grades six through eight about African history and historical topics in African culture. So one of the first topics that we're launching is African-American leaders, where we talk about African-American leaders in the civil rights movement that weren't talked about. So the first leader was Fannie Lou Hamer, right? And what she basically did for um, voting rights. And the really the real agenda of Creation Academy is to inform African youth about African history. And it's something that's not being taught in the traditional education system. And it's just that little awareness about Fannie Lou Hamer or the little bit of a more awareness about what Malcolm X was really trying to do or what MLK was really trying to do and what these steps that they took that's going to empower young African kids that look just like me and you. So that is really what the mission behind Creation Academy is. It's to start this movement towards understanding self. And when the, the young generation understands who they are, they can, ne- they can build the next generation. They can build the nation that we want to see. Now, we have a challenge, Michelle. we got an uphill battle, right? Because teachers have gone to education. You know, they've gone to schools that this is not getting taught in, you know? Parents might not necessarily have the buy-in and then kids are going to look at you like you're crazy. You know, what are you talking about? You know? And so how do we, what is the process, right? So we got to think about this, right? What is the process we're going to take to start to implement this stuff in gradually? Well, I think the process is just a question, right? Like asking a question, a simple question can lead you down a search for more information. And what I really want to do is implant that question into those minds of children. It's like, okay, yeah, my teacher tells me that Rosa Parks was just a woman who sat on a bus, who sat in the front of the bus and she didn't really do much, you know, but then that question is, okay, she didn't really do much. Then why was there such a a march? Why was there people boycotting the bus? What was she really fighting for? And it's that question, for example, what was she really fighting for? And what was the reason that starts to make questions in children's brain? So to really start this this movement or this agenda, I say just start with a question. And for those who parents or teachers who feel like, you know, students who feel like they're we're going against totally what their parents or teachers taught them, I would just tell them, you know, there, here's a question. Can you find the answer? Now, one of the things I'm going to give you some advice on, too, and you mentioned it. How did you find this stuff? Right. You found this stuff through media and content, right? Black people in this country produce so much content, right? But how much of it is utilized to uplift and elevate and nurture us as a people? It is vastly underutilized, which is why I'm excited about podcasting, because podcasting allows us to bypass the gatekeepers and go straight to our people and give them content for them to uplift and elevate at them. You've launched a podcast, so you're ahead of the curve on that. Right. We need to think about is what do we do to get your podcast in front of the right kind of people? All right. And that's what I'm going to help you um, with um, as far as doing that. Right. But this idea of media. Right. We need to own media is so powerful. We see what it does negative to us. Right. You know, black men getting chased by the cops, black people on TV as athletes. Right. Where is the media of us as entrepreneurs? Where is the media of us in our own skin? You know, in the dashikis and everything else. And I'll tell you, confession again. I used to think that was hokey. You know, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm down in the South in Texas. I'm like, why is auntie wearing a dashiki? No, she ain't ever been to Africa. But I didn't even know, right, that this was like, man, you're so far removed. You feel uncomfortable in your own skin, which goes back to the falsification of African consciousness. And we got to start pulling on that. And when I moved to Newark, I'm always impressed by the people from Ghana, you know, 
because I feel like they really just, they're just themselves, you know? Their look, their swag, right? Business casual for us as black people looks a lot different from people I've seen from Ghana. You know, they got the button down, the loafers, you know, the beads versus us. We got the toot, the tie, you know? And so just kind of getting back to that. And I'm excited to, to see your journey with this. And as long as you're willing to work, we're going to support you um, in the process. All right, Michelle, you've got people from all over the country, all over the world, a lot of veterans, probably half of them are white, maybe more black veterans, brown veterans, it doesn't matter. And they're really interested in the kind of hearing this the stuff we talk about on this platform. So you've got this audience of people out there that may or may not be on board with African Center Education, doesn't matter. But I just want to give you an opportunity to leave some closing remarks with them as they as you continue to explore on um, this topic. Well, I would just want to say, I would say two things, right? I would say first to those African-Americans or people of color who want to enrich their community and really help their community grow. I would say it starts with the child, right? We need as an African community to build back the African family. And it starts with the child. It starts with you educating your child about who they are and where they come from. That's foremost. And for the people, for white people, um, <laughs> Being a white moderate is basically being racist. So if you want to help and help enrich people of color, I would say do all that you can to not be a white moderate. And the white moderate came from Martin Luther King. He said the white moderate is basically the same as someone who is overtly racist. You standing behind just saying, yeah, um, I believe in Black Lives Matter, but not doing nothing doesn't mean that you're doing anything. Right. So I would just encourage you to help. Where can people find you and follow you at? Um, you can follow me on cre um, on Instagram at creation underscore academy. So that's K-R-E-A-T-I-O-N underscore academy. You can also follow me on LinkedIn at creation academy. Also, well. you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run your podcast on my platform. So I want you to send me your best episode and I'll run it for our listeners out there. Um, and then we're also going to help you create your podcast. We're going to help you get it right and I'll help you think about how to get in front of your perfect listener. Now, one thing I want to say about what you said about the white moderate, this is my this is my opinion on the white moderates. For me, I just want to be accepted. You know, I want to be accepted as me. And I, I feel like a lot of times black people are kind of put inside this box where we have to talk, think, act a certain way. And the reason I have such close friends that are white, because I feel like they get they just accept me for me. You know, they don't try to put any restraints on my thinking or whatever else. So, you know, we can disagree. We can have different views, but we can still come together. Like I accept you, you accept me. Man, I necessarily agree with it. I think the problem is a lot of times it's the opposite of that. It is trying to put us in a box where it's like, hey, I support you as long as you don't talk like this. You know, like as long as you're teaching this, as long as you're doing this, instead of just let me have that kind of self-education. And I think we feel that cognitive dissonance of it. And we see it in the nonprofit world where we have boards of basically people that don't look like the community that they're supporting. You know, so again, it's like the power dynamic, like controlling what's getting taught, controlling all this kind of stuff, rather than letting the community and the people find out what's best for them and make decisions that's best for them. Um, and so I think I'm just going to compliment what you said about uh, the white moderate. But it was a great discussion. I'm very proud of you coming on this platform and uh, speaking your truth to power. Um, and you're the reason we launched Thrive. So you have an opportunity to get cultivated and nourished and uh, know it's possible to, to launch that business. For our listeners out there, 
I need you to do me a favor. First, I need you to go over and follow the Creation Academy uh, on Instagram. I'll leave it in the show notes for you. Check out her podcast. It's super dope. I'm going to run a couple episodes on here, and then we're going to help her rebrand her show so she can get in front of the right audience. But I need you all out there to head over to Confessions of... I need you to... Correction. I also need you all to subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, feel free to forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter. You can head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you like this type of dialogue and are interested in booking me to speak at your organization, you can contact me through the website. Just click the tab that says book me to speak, fill out your contact information, and someone from my team will get back to you as soon as possible. Also, be sure to order some dope coffee at www.realdope.coffee. We've got, start, we've got to start supporting our businesses, y'all. It's black and veteran owned and is the epitome of economic empowerment. Also, check out our new sponsor, Sincerely Body, to order some handmade pain relief wellness products. I actually know the CEO of the company. She just so happens to be my girlfriend, and she helps us here with Thrive, and she does so much amazing support. So I'm uh, bringing her on as a sponsor uh, to show some support to her. So head over to SincerelyBody.com. That's body with B-A-D-E dot Sincerely Body, B-A-D-E.com, and uh, show her some support. Now, I usually don't have this this long of a breakdown, but I do want to talk about Thrive because, you know, this is how I was able to connect with Michelle. And Thrive is a small business incubator um, under our nonprofit, Ironbound Boxing Education, that teaches youth and young adults in the city how to start a small business. We teach them uh, marketing, finance, leadership, and we give them the tools and the resources they need. We're not, we're, we're about getting it done. This is not a, oh, look at me, you know, kind of entrepreneurial program. We feel good about ourselves. You know, we're in there with the kids in the trenches. We have one-on-one coaching sessions, right? We give them micro grants to get started. So we're serious about uh, improving the economic conditions of young black and brown kids in the inner city. And to learn more about this program, just head over to ironboundboxing.org. You know, we run free amateur boxing uh, programs for youth and young adults here in the city of Newark, our entrepreneur education and employment opportunities. If you're ready to get in the fight, if you're tired of posting and tweeting on social media, talking this and that, and say, hey, you're really about supporting the community and you want to do something positive, help support us and help support uh, this talent like Michelle because there's more of her all over this country. And so what we got to do is we got to make Thrive successful here in the city of Newark and use our program as a replicable model all across the country. Message me on Instagram, shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network. We're rooting for everybody that's black. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man. 